0: Top 10 books that you're supposed to read before you die. There's a Harris poll, and they poll people about different things. And so the Harris poll asked people randomly, what are the top 10 books that you should read before you die? And I'll work my way from 10 to 1. Maybe you've read these books. The, number 10 was The Catcher in the Rye. Number 9 was a book called Atlas Shrugged which is a philosophy book turned into a movie, and it's kind of a, it's a philosophy and a, through, a, through a novel. Then there's the book Angels and Demons by a man named Dan Brown, which made, was made into a movie as well recently, To Kill a Mockingbird. So some of you got excited on that. Um, the Da Vinci Code was another book by Dan Brown, number six. And The Da Vinci Code and, and Angel and Demons is this series that, that Dan Brown wrote. It's a novel, kind of a mystery who-done-it sort of deal. But the premise of the books are, the church has been lying to you for the last 2,000 years. So, don't agree with that. Then there's The Stand by Stephen King. I've never read anything by Stephen King, but I remember that the cover of the, of the movie It, had like a scary clown. I never saw clowns the same after that. Everybody's already afraid of clowns, right? But then you, you see that. And then Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series number four. We must be getting warm. Um, the Lord of the Rings. Now we're talking, all right? Then we regress just a little bit to Gone with the Wind. Sorry. And then what do you think the number one book you should read before you die? The it's the Bible. Now, here's, here's the deal when it comes to this. Yes, we would wholeheartedly agree the book you should read before you die is the Bible. But the Bible is not a novel, the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is, the, by its own self-disclosures, the very words of God. It's the very words of God that he wants us to know about him and what our purpose is and, and who we are. And here's my question as we begin this morning. Be honest with yourself. How much influence does the Bible truly have on your daily life? It's easy to come on Sunday and hear a message And maybe even listen to a message during the week. But how much influence, how much impact is the scriptures having in your daily life? Because I can tell you this. The more influence the Bible has on your life, the more like Christ you're going to become. The more loving you're going to become. The more sense of purpose you're going to have. The more promises you'll understand when life isn't fair or life hurts. You'll know what God has to say about these things that happen to us. So we're in the middle of a series called AD if you're if you're new with us today. And since Easter, we've been trekking through the book of Acts. We're actually going to finish next week. And so what we've done since since Easter is we've had a reading plan and we've been reading the book of Acts and we finish this coming Friday. And I've been hearing great stories about how people are growing in their their desire for God's word, and and just getting that daily discipline of of reading the word on a more consistent basis. and We've been doing our sermons around uh, the book of Acts, highlighting the book of Acts. Our home groups have been studying this as well. But there's the series that's going on on NBC on Sunday nights at 8 o'clock. How many have been able to be watching that? Yeah, it's been very well done. It's not a verse-by-verse sort of thing. They're obviously putting some filler in to... To the story and all of that, but I think they've done a pretty good job, and it's been it's been good to see these things be dramatically portrayed. So that's what we're we're looking at, and we've been trekking through this a little bit. We got to know a guy named Paul a couple weeks ago, and we're going to con- continue um, a little bit this morning with him and what he did. Paul, who in Acts chapter nine. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He thought it was his God-given job to make sure Christianity was stamped out. Because it went against everything of what he believed and what he thought made him who he was. And so Jesus comes to him on the road to Damascus and reveals himself to him. And Paul goes from being this religious terrorist to a, a loving servant of Jesus that's been happened to many people in this room. Maybe you weren't a religious terrorist, but you were far from God and you didn't know God. And Jesus has come to you and through the gospel revealed himself to you and he changed you and he's continuing to change you. Maybe today if you're in here and you're not sure about this Jesus guy, he can change you. And he will for the good. That's not just a scary thing. He will change you and give your life purpose, forgive you of of our wrongs. He'll forgive us of our past and give us hope for a future. So Paul, he went on these missionary journeys where he would, you know, the, 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 the Bible is so amazing how... The story lines up with history and how God in his sovereignty knew what he wanted to accomplish. In the Old Testament, you see the Jews being dispersed out of the land of Israel to all parts of the earth. When they were dispersed, that was part of their, their punishment. When they had, had, had failed God and he had told them that was going to happen. So you have these little, everywhere Paul went, you see in the book of Acts, there was a Jewish synagogue in these Greek cities or in Asia or Turkey or wherever. And he would go first to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel to the Jews. And then, uh, and then the, the, the people that weren't Jews were coming to Christ and they would establish a church there. And so that's where we get our letters to the New Testament. In the New Testament, like 1 Thessalonians was the church at Thessalonica. Philippians, the church at Philippi, and so forth. So Paul's on his missionary journey. We see in, in Acts chapter 17, he had gone to Thessalon, uh, Thessalonica. And this is what it says. Acts seventeen ten verses t- 10 through 12. That very night... The believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Did you catch that? After Paul preached to them, it says that they searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul was saying was true or not. Now, they would have only had the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and they would have gone to those books and said, is this true about this Messiah? Is this true about Jesus? They probably went to Isaiah 53 and saw Jesus, the prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead. They saw all that. Uh, to be a good Berean is kind of an adjective now of somebody who loves scripture. If you're a good Berean, it means you love to, to dig into the scriptures. You love to find out for yourself what does scripture really say about it. There are churches, Berean Bible Church, for example. There are people that have named their churches after this. To be a good Berean, to be somebody like this, means that you learn to search for yourself and not just take somebody else's word for it, not just take my word for it or somebody you like to listen to on the radio or TV or whatever, but you search the scriptures for yourself to find out if this is really true or not. We live in a time where people are very gullible. People can be very naive to... Uh, every you know trickery or wind of new thing that comes in, what does the scriptures truly say? And we at Novation don't don't hear us think that we have the be all end all in the Bible. That every interpretation we have is is perfect. But we do hold the essentials of Scripture high and true and where and and we will we can we can debate and talk about secondary issues but man we're not going to divide over the most important issues that are salvation issues and things that are eternal there might be differences of opinion on style of worship modes of baptism the gifts of the spirit whatever it is those are secondary to the to, to hold high the essentials of scripture Many errors could be avoided if we would become like the Bereans. So I've titled today's message, How to Get the Most Out of the Bible. How to Get the Most Out of the Bible. If you're wondering about scripture, and is this really God's word or not, as I say every time we talk about scripture, I'm willing to sit down with anybody who wants to know why do we believe that the Bible is trustworthy in the word of God. We have other people besides me that would love to sit down and explain to you that. But we believe that wholeheartedly and trust that the scriptures are really, really God's word. Jesus said this. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's so many people looking for, for freedom, freedom from addictions, freedom from depression, freedom from their brokenness, freedom from broken lives. Looking for hope. Man, we have how many people around us? You hear it every day. Difficulties and trials and things that people go through, and just the gut ache and heartache. And it breaks your heart to hear about that. Where do people find hope? Well, Jesus says, What you need more than anything is truth. What we need to put our hope on, what we need to put our, our find freedom in is his truth. Paul comments. In his letter to the Colossians on this thing that Jesus said about his word setting us free. He said, let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his words to teach, to counsel each other. Again, that's why we hold the scriptures in high esteem. Because it teaches us what we need to know. I believe there's four convictions. Four things that truly you and I need to be convinced of if we're gonna get the most out of the Bible. This is, this is you know a conviction that you bank your life on. The first one is this. If I'm gonna be a good Berean, if I'm gonna get the most out of the Bible, I must believe that God's word is essential for true spiritual understanding. You gotta believe that his word is essential for true spiritual understanding. I believe the Bereans believe that with all their heart. And what they had of the scriptures, they believed that that was essential for true spiritual understanding. So they dove into it, and they studied, and they talked about and they probably sparred back and forth. Well, does Isaiah really mean this? And what did this prophet mean? And is this Jesus here? And they would have sparred, like we do in our Bible studies, to learn more and and to grow. There's many voices in the world trying to give us spiritual understanding. All you got to do is turn the TV on in the afternoon... I'm not picking on her, but Pastor Oprah, she, she, has, a, she has a spiritual part every, every afternoon. And she's trying to give spiritual understanding to people. Dr. Phil, wake up in the middle of the night and you see an infomercial. And there's a motivational speaker trying to tell you about spiritual understanding and what your purpose is. Uh, you drive down Wadsworth and over at 58th and Wadsworth, there's an astrologist that'll read your palm and Tell you your fortune or whatever, and and so there's voices all over the place trying to tell us what real spiritual understanding truly is. I love to go to bookstores. Went to Barnes and Nobles the other day. When you walk into Barnes and Nobles, you know you got history, you got sports, you got kids, you got everything. You get over to the to the spiritual section, and you you know there's the religious section, and so you have you could have a, a, a Bible, a book by Billy Graham, and then you have the Dalai Lama and. Deepak Chopra and somebody else and all this conglomerate of different uh, religions and philosophies all together. So somebody walks in, do they know, what is? how am I gonna find true spiritual understanding? It starts with the scriptures. It really does. Paul, on, on just before this passage that I read to you earlier, he went to, to Thessalonica and they actually started a church there. And in the book, 1 Thessalonians, he writes to them, this key about believing that the Bible is essential to, to under, having true spiritual understanding. He says this. He says, and we will never stop thanking God that when we preached his message to you, you didn't think of the words we spoke as being just our own. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it was. And this word continues to work in you who believe. That's good stuff. The word is at work at you when you read the word and it goes into your mind it goes down to your heart even when you're sleeping and dreaming about something else the word of god is working it's like a seed underneath the ground that's been watered and you don't see it growing but it is it's happening that happens every time you get in the word every time you hear the word it's in your heart here's some cool things about that i think are awesome about the bible Um, To me, the Bible answers life's significant issues and questions. This summer, we're going to do a series starting in June called Life's Big Questions. We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes during the summer and how it it really gives us an understanding of what life's big questions are about. But first of all, it helps me grasp what God is really like. The Bible helps you and I grasp what God is really like. Without the Bible, I'm guessing what God is like. People have, have a warped concept of God. You know, if you had a, a bad dad, if you didn't have a good father figure growing up, it's easy to paint the picture that that's what God's like. I know somebody who is, they're eight of 11 children, and eight of the 11 are all boys. And this person was raised on a, on a farm in the country. Had a dad that was just one of those hard-nosed, work-hard, old-school, sweatier-brow kind of guy. And uh, he would go to church on Sunday. And he would practice this very pious, outward thing of what he believed in God. But then go home and abuse his kids verbally, physically. Then go back to church and they'd see him cry at church. And he was pious and he was... He didn't practice what he preached. So it was hard for this person to understand that God is a, a loving father. He told me the story that one year for Christmas, all eight boys, what they got for Christmas was one basketball. Here, guys, Merry Christmas. That was their, their gift. So one day when they were out, they should have been working, they were shooting baskets. And, they were, they were, and he came out and saw that, live it as all, get up. Grabbed the basketball, took a hatchet, poof, popped that basketball and said, get to work. If that's your view of your, of your earthly father and you don't really know God and he's trying to tell you this is what God is like, it's pretty warped. Maybe that was you. Maybe you didn't have a great father figure growing up. I thank God that I had a good father figure. Someone who showed me love and grace. And it helped me to understand my concept of God. But that's not true of everybody. I know that. But Jesus came to reveal what God was like. He took the mystery. Even if you only had the Old Testament, how many agree it would be kind of hard to understand God? I mean, it, it would be. And I'm not saying you can't find God there. Don't, don't hear me wrong. God is God, true, all the way through. And he was very graceful as well in the Old Testament. But there's some things that are just hard to understand. But Jesus comes and he says, when you've seen me, You've seen what God is like. You've seen the Father. And the way Jesus talked to people, the way the broken were attracted to him, the way the prostitutes, the drunks, the whatever, they were attracted to him. They wanted to be around him. He didn't didn't push them away. He came to reveal what God was was truly like. Second thing here is the Bible helps me uh, understand the difficult questions of life. There are some difficult questions in life. Several years back when I was playing adult baseball on Sundays, um, I had a, a teammate, became a pretty good friend of mine, and we were riding to a game one time, and he said, Why are you a Christian? <laughs> Anybody ever had that question asked to? He said, Point blank, man, why are you a Christian? He wasn't a Christian, but he was curious. He goes, Why are you a Christian? I remember going, Wow, that's a really good question. Well, let me tell you. I am a Christian truly because Jesus answers these big questions of life every person is haunted by these questions we're haunted by what happens when you die we all want to know that we experience when somebody dies and we we want to know what really happens jesus promised that when we believe in him we have eternal life that we get to live with him forever he answers the question of why was i created what's my purpose Purpose is I was created to love God and worship him and love people. I was created with purpose. What you do for a living, your vocation, that is not your purpose in life. Your purpose is at your vocation, in your family, at your school, whatever it is, to bring glory to God by loving him and loving people. He answers those those big questions. The cross makes sense of life. People always ask, why is there suffering in the world? It's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. You look to the cross, you see a suffering savior, pain for sin and pain for suffering for us so that we could be right with God and know that there's more to life than just what we get this side of of death. He shows us, it helps us understand the, the difficult questions of life. And then the Bible teaches me truly what my purpose is. How many people are purposeless? They're running around, Pursuing empty dreams. And even the best things in life, whether it's marriage, family, the good things that we can experience, those are awesome. But they still, they even, marriage has a, you know, because of death and because of people growing and growing up and leaving home, all these good things even have a little bit of an expiration date to it. But my purpose is eternal. Your purpose is eternal. Loving God loving people. And then the Bible assures me of what my future holds. It assures me of what my future holds. There's so much unsure things going on in our life. Yet we can have a peace knowing what our future holds. If I've told you this story before, please please bear with me. But those that have never heard this story, I felt like I was supposed to share this one of the highlights of doing ministry i've been a pastor for 20 years and probably one of the the best experiences i ever had was several years back of a friend named barry and barry's father was dying of lung cancer and barry's father was not a believer he didn't have any religious beliefs would have been a you know self-proclaimed atheist slash agnostic and his name was jack and Barry said, would you come talk to my dad? Just, you know, share the gospel with him? And sure, I'd be glad to do that. Because they were going to offer some kind of counseling or something. And he said, I'd like for you to come. So Jack was open to it. I came over one day. Jack, he was still smoking, you know, on his, on his deathbed. And, and he had lung cancer. And so he, he, he was going to die shortly. So, man, I smelt like smoke after I left his house, but we sat and we talked, and, and I, I gave him my, my best apologetics, the love of God, Jesus, I mean, and, and it felt like it was just bouncing off brick wall there. It just was not penetrating his mind or his heart, and I left a little discouraged, and I remember telling Barry, well, let's just pray, keep praying, and so Barry calls me back, a couple days later, and he says, my dad wants to talk to you again. I said, okay. He said, Barry said, but I can't be there this time. So it's just me and Jack. Me and Jack sit down at his kitchen table. He's here. He's, he's puffing cigarettes. And I, and I had my Bible. And we start talking. And I, and I said, I felt led in my heart to read from Romans chapter five, verses one and two. You would think that I would be led with this real evangelistic scripture, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. But that's not what I felt led to do. And, and so I, I opened the Bible and I read Romans 5, 1 through 2 that says, therefore, uh, we have having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jack called a time out time out he goes I've always kind of believed that there was a God it's kind of stupid not to think that there wasn't a creator he said but I've never known what to do with this Jesus guy and he said according to what you just read to me I come to God through Jesus I said ding 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 yes Jack that's exactly what you do and I said Jack would you like to come to, to God through Jesus he said I would and he lit up a smoke. I'd never prayed with somebody to receive Christ that lit up a smoke, but it was pretty cool. And he'd blow all the smoke you want at this point. I mean, and he, he, he prayed and he was sincere. He wanted Jesus. He wanted to go to heaven. He wanted Jesus to forgive him. Two days later, Jack passed away. And uh, man, I remember doing his funeral. I got the privilege of doing his funeral. And I remember talking to his family and friends, Jack was a mailman, worked for the post office for a long time, and I told the story about what had happened to Jack on his deathbed, that he had put his trust in Jesus to take him into eternity. I told the people, I said, you're going, that's not the Jack we knew, he wasn't a religious guy. And I said, no, he wasn't. And I preached the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross? He was dying for his crime, being punished. And at the last minute, he, he turned to Jesus and he said, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He said, today, I sh- assuredly, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus gave him that promise. I remember just being so encouraged by that. He knew that his, what his future held. And you can know that too. Put your trust in Jesus that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, and his, all he asks of you. Is to turn away from a life of, of of self, turn away from that life of of sin, and turn to Him. He'll give you joy. He'll give you truth. He'll give you forgiveness. That's what repentance is called. You turn from from everything else and turn to Jesus and say, "I give you my life." Second conviction we need, if we're going to get the most out of the Bible, be like the Bereans. I must believe that God's Word is essential for spiritual growth. It's essential for spiritual growth. Now, many in this room, you have been relying on the faith of of someone else. Someone else brought you to Jesus. They brought you to church. And you've been under their spiritual direction. Guess what? Good. That's what we're supposed to do. It's called discipleship. It's called evangelism. We share and we bring people along. But here's the deal. Each of us need to learn how to grow ourselves. You need to learn how to feed yourself the word of God. When I did, uh, I did youth ministry for about 10 years, and one thing that was always like clockwork, if somebody was raised in, in a Christian home, they were raised in church, about ninth and 10th grade, when they got that high school little bit of independence and 10th grade of maybe driving, there would be this, huh, is this mom and dad's faith or is this really my faith? And you'd see this little crisis of faith go on in their life. And as a parent, that can be very freaky. That can be kind of panicky. Whoa, is all this we put into our kids and they're doing these dumb things and they're saying silly things like they're not sure what they believe or whatever. Listen, he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And that's part of the growth process is learning to own your own faith. First Peter tells us, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's a pretty good illustration for this church right now. (laughs) Newborn babes everywhere. We we grow when we get a grip on God's word. If you took the the commitment class or you take the commitment class in the future, you'll know about this. But everybody hold your hand up like this. Hold your hand. This is how you get a, a, a grip on God's word. You can put it down now. But there's six things. The thumb, if you want to remember this, is you got to hear the word. you got to hear the word. Then you got to read the word. And then you got to study the word. Not just hear it, not just read it, but then you study the word. Then you memorize the word. Do you realize that if you memorized one verse of the Bible every week, you'd have 52 verses memorized at the end of the year? That's a lot of scripture. We memorize phone numbers, we memorize passcodes, unless you got a smartphone, that's kind of ruined everything. But you, you, you have to memorize certain things, and so you memorize it, and then you meditate on it. What does it mean to meditate on the word of God? To meditate on it is to chew on it, to digest it, to, to think it over, to mull it over. How many are good at worrying? everybody raise your hand to worry is to mull something over and play something over in your mind over and over what if, what if uh oh does it happen I'm in trouble so you're worrying meditating on the word is taking God's word and his promises and little by little you chew on it you say it slowly you write it down you let it sink into your heart and then the most important thing is you apply the word that's the palm you apply the word. So you get a grip on God's word by hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing the word, meditate on it, and then apply it. Do what it says. Do what scripture says. Here's an honest evaluation of my life and yours. The only parts of the Bible that you and I truly believe are the ones that we obey. I can say I believe the Bible, but do I do what it says? I can say that I believe I'm supposed to be a loving person, Am I growing and being a loving person? I can, I can say, yeah, I believe the Bible says I'm supposed to be generous. Am I generous? The Bible says that I'm not supposed to steal. Do I steal? I mean, you, whatever parts of the Bible we believe, we actually do. We actually put into practice. Third conviction I think we need to have to get the most of Scripture is this. I must believe that God's word is essential for spiritual maturity. Essential for spiritual maturity. With all these new babies that we have here at Novation, and if you're at a different season of life than having a newborn, you're in the right church, because we have people from all seasons of life, and the cool thing I love about Novation is we're a multi-generational church. It's not just young families. It's not just young people. It's just not, you know, people that are retired. We have, we have people from, from every season of life. We need each other. You know, these people that are, that are having these babies, they need people to mentor them. They need people to walk through life with them in every season of life. So I love that. But we do have a lot of babies. It's in the burritos, like I said. That's why we didn't have burritos this morning. We figured this was a big week. But these babies, listen, we have, don't we have an expectation of these babies that when we see them a year from now, they're going to look different than they look today? How about when they're 10? If they're still gaga goo -goo with the with the binky in the mouth and sucking on a bottle, we're going to say there's a problem here. There's why is your baby growing but not maturing, etc. You're going to same thing goes spiritually for us. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. He says you've been Christians a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things a beginner must learn about the scriptures. You're like babies who drink only milk and cannot eat solid food. And a person who is living on milk isn't very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about doing what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who have trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong. There's a couple things that I think you can look for some symptoms of, of spiritual maturity, and it's a lack of three things. First of all, a lack of focus you can write that down a symptom of spiritual maturity is a lack of focus now I've coached little league baseball anybody else done that before you coach little league baseball and when they're like seven eight nine years old I went to Carson Craig's game a couple weeks ago and you see the, the these little guys out there and baseball is a mind game you got to be smart that's why it's the best sport ever you got to have to be really smart to play it that was a little dig but it, it, it's, it is, it's a thinking game You gotta know what's going on And you watch these little kids Like you're trying to practice And they're drawing pictures He's playing shortstop Drawing a smiley face Ooh, look, a bumblebee You know, a balloon I mean, the focus isn't exactly there And practice is like the hardest thing To keep, keep kids corralled And they get so easily distracted So do we Spiritually We're like little kids sometimes Trying to practice baseball we let the cares of this world, I let the cares of this world I'll speak for myself. And you can see that it's easy to get distracted on, is there enough money? Or is there this? Or is this going to work out right? And, and I got my mind distracted off of what God wants us me to truly focus on. Listen, what's going to help you get focus is the word. If you're not in the word consistently, you lack focus. And you're distracted by the cares of the world. That's just a fact. It happens to me. When I'm not consistent, and you'd think, Scott, you're a pastor, you read the word all day long and pray. No, I don't. And I don't golf all day long either. That would be cool. But you, you, it, sometimes just life and doing, and it's just you get so busy, you don't get in the word. I guarantee you, there's mature Christians in this room. You can uh, agree with me. When you're not consistently in the word, you've lost your focus. It's just a fact. So the simple thing is, Get back to that. Get back to the focus of letting God's word uh, be that priority for your maturity. Another symptom of spiritual maturity is a loss of appetite. Obviously, a loss of appetite can mean that I'm uh, I'm not feeling good. Or maybe you're just filled up on junk food. Those of you that, that prepare meals regularly for your family or for somebody, how frustrating is it When you spend all this time preparing a meal for your family and you sit down and somebody says, I'm not really hungry. Oh, you're not. (laughs) Uh, And you spent time, you put love into this meal, right? It wasn't just mac and cheese and bologna. This was, you put some love into this meal and somebody to say, they're not hungry, they lost their appetite. Well, what happened? Well, at about 2.30, I I, kind of had the afternoon crash and two Snickers, and a bag of chips. I don't know what happened. I just, all of a sudden, and I'm not hungry anymore. Well, we do that spiritually. It's so easy to fill up on other things. And then when it comes to our appetite for the things of God, and I'm not saying this talking down to you. I'm talking to myself. It's so easy to get distracted and think, ah, is this really, do I got time for this? A hungry person makes time to eat because They're hungry. A hungry person makes time for this because they know they need food, spiritual food. And then a lack of discernment. Symptoms of spiritual immaturity is also a lack of discernment. He says that someone in the writer of Hebrews said that somebody knows right from wrong. I mean, the simple things of knowing right from wrong. Lack of discernment is an inability to determine right from wrong. If you're not in the word, then you don't really know what God says to do or not to do. And the big the most important part of that is we're told over and over to delight in the commands of God. Why are we to delight in the commands of God? When I say 10 commandments, do you think hey, yeah, the 10 we usually think do this. Whoosh, it's the law. It's if you, if you break it. No, God says that his commands are good because he actually knows what's best for us. We don't. And so someone that's growing and maturing in the word and sees where the scripture says, do this or don't do that, says, you know what, God knows what's best for me. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna be my own Lord. I'm not gonna be my own boss. I'm gonna let him call the shots. It helps us discern truth from error. It helps us discern the essentials from the non-essentials. That's important. Here's a good question to ask yourself. Do I let, the, do I let life circumstances, feelings, situations. Do I let life interpret scripture for me? Or does this scripture interpret life for me? What I mean is people can say they're believers and they believe in the word, but then they get a bad report from the doctor or they get betrayed or something out of the blue happens and you're thinking how does some suffering, some trial comes in. At that moment, you're tempted to go, is this really true? Is this going to interpret that? Or are you going to let circumstances interpret the Bible? I say the latter is better for all of us to learn to do that. That's when we're growing in maturity. Lastly, I would tell you this. Got to have this conviction. If I'm going to get the most out of the word, be like the Bereans. I must believe that God's word is essential for spiritual effectiveness. It's essential for spiritual effectiveness. How many in here want your life to count? Raise your hand high. You want your life to count. You want your life to matter. I went to, a, to a, a funeral last week of a man named Brian McNeely. Brian McNeely spoke here at Novation about a year and a half ago. And a month after he spoke, he got diagnosed with cancer. And the cancer took his life about two weeks ago. And how many remember when Brian spoke? He's from Global Refuge, yeah. And yeah, 57 years old. And Brian was a football coach. Idaho, some small schools in Kansas, Indiana, and CU. And uh, had a really successful career. In 2001, Brian took a group of college students to Burma in this war-torn country and saw all the poverty and the pain and said, football coach, no more. I'm going to pursue my life to give my life to, to God, to, you know, helping people in their pain. And uh, going to his funeral and listening to how people talked about his life, whew, I cried the whole time. In a good way, I cried. It was a cleansing cry. Brian's son got up, Jaden, and he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, when my, when my dad passed away, he said, he didn't leave us with any regrets he didn't leave us with, with marks on our heart or some scars or undealt with thing. He was a good dad. He, he, he did what he said he was going to do. And I thought, man, Lord, let that be true of me. When, I, when sp- my kids are speaking to my family, let there be nothing undone, no wounds, no things that need to be dealt with. There's many people that when your parents go on, you still got this undealt with stuff. It wasn't true of him. I hope that's not true of me, and let's, not let, that be, let's let that be true of us. Then he had this football player come up this guy from the inner city, Miami. And he played for him at Garden City Community College. And then he went on to play for Auburn and he played linebacker in the NFL for several different teams. He named these coaches like Jim Mora, Dennis Green. I mean, all these famous NFL coaches. And he said not one of those coaches could hold a candle to Brian McNeely and what he did for my life and leading me to Jesus and modeling what it meant to be a man. I was cloudballing at that point in time. It was, touch me. Well, he was spiritually effective in his life with the the legacy that's been left in global refuge refuges, left in good hands with his kids. Ladies, you heard from Shaughnessy yesterday if you came. That's Brian's daughter. So God's word is essential. Look what the this, this self-disclosing description that scripture gives of itself. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. It's awesome. Three quick things. When you come to the word, if you want it to be a, have, it, have effect on your life and for you to be effective, read it prayerfully. You can write that down. Read the word prayerfully. Come to it with reverence. Come to it with relationship. Don't come to the word as a duty and a check off. Come to it expecting to hear from God in humility. Read the word in a repentant spirit. When you read the word, come in in an attitude like this. God, I'm coming to your word today. And I, I pray that you would change my thinking. I pray you would change bad attitudes that I have. pray pray that you would change any direction in my life. The word's gonna change you if you come to it repented. You know, to repent means I'm going in this direction, I repent, I turn around, I go in the other direction. So in our lives, we get off course. And repentance is a way of life. It's just, God, I was going the wrong direction, help me to go in the direction you want for me. And then read the word expectantly. Read it expectantly. Expect God to meet with you expect him to show you something new every time let it be delight not duty and then last point here is take one thought or verse with you throughout the day take one thought or verse and just chew on it throughout the day it will affect your life here's one thing i know two things the devil definitely wants to hinder you from there's two things he doesn't want you to share your faith because if you don't share your faith, then other people don't hear about the gospel. He doesn't, he's doing everything he can to hinder you from sharing your faith. The other thing he's doing is he wants to hinder you from spending time in God's word and to pray over his word. Those are the two things. If he can get you to not share your faith and to not spend time in God's word, you're ineffective because you're not sharing your faith, so, so no one else is hearing truth. And you're not growing because you're not spending time in, in God's word. I'm not growing when I don't spend in time's wor- time in God's word. Two things he wants to do. There's a man named George Mueller. He ran orphanages in England in the ter- late 1800s. And I like to read his stuff because George Mueller was an incredible man. He saw miracle after miracle and has like over 500 in his notebook, over 500 times God answered specific prayer for him. He would write these things down. And one day he was trying to feed the orphans and they had no food. And he, told, he said, bring the kids down for breakfast. And they said, well, there's no food. And he said, bring them down anyway. God will provide. This is how, how this man rolled. <laughs> and so uh, they came down and he prayed and thanked God for the food. And there was a knock on the door. They went outside, and there was a milk truck that had broke down outside. The wagon wheel had broke. And he said, "We got all this food that's going to go bad. We were trying to deliver. We figure you better have it as an orphanage." God provided eggs, milk, everything that they needed right there, just by a simple prayer. Here's what George Mueller said in his autobiography: "I believe that the one chief reason that I have been kept in happy, useful service is that I've been a lover of holy Scripture." It has been my habit to read the Bible through four times a year in a prayerful spirit to apply it to my heart and practice what I find there. I have been for 69 years a happy man. Happy, happy, happy. So true. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that you need it for spiritual effectiveness, for maturity, for growth, for truly understanding what life's about? If you were to give yourself on a one to 10, 10 being the highest, one being the lowest, how much influence truly does the word of God have on you today? And would you be willing to commit and say, you know what, I might not be where I'm supposed to be today, I'm going to commit to getting more and more. I'm committing to read the word even more in my life. If that's you today and you're saying, you know what, I want to do that, let's stand to our feet and we'll ask God to, to bless that commitment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you for, for the gift of the Bible. Thank you for the life-giving words that you have, have given us in that. Thank you that the Bible tells us who we are, It tells us who you are, It tells us how to know you, it tells us about Jesus, it gives us these promises. God, I pray and ask that you would just open our minds and our hearts and give us that diligent hunger for deeper, deep, going deeper in your word. We pray today in Jesus' awesome name. God, I pray for every person in this room. Father, for people to come into a deeper knowledge of you, uh, a sense of, of, of community and fellowship in this place. Father, I pray for every hurt. That is represented in here. Your word has a promise for, for every need, every hurt that we have. So let us experience that, God. As we sang earlier, let us experience the joy of your presence. It's in your presence that, God, we, we, we know that you're true and who you are. Let us experience your presence as we approach your word and go about our week. In Jesus' name, amen.